Well, good morning, Foothill. Good to see you all here. I'm Pastor Chris, and uh, my family and I have been on vacation for a few weeks, and it's just great to be back with you, great to be back home. Had a chance to reconnect as husband and wife, as uh, father, mother, and children, and uh, uh, just get away for a little while. But um, we are so excited to be back, and I see some new faces in this room, but I see a lot of old faces, and I'm just glad to, to come back in here and reconnect and get to open the Word of God with you again. And, uh, and so it's good to see all of you again. If we've not met before, I'd love to meet you uh, afterwards. I'll be out near the black info tent or out in the lobby, and I'd love to shake your hand and get to know you a little bit. Um, but I want to say, while I was gone, I'm just so grateful that uh, Foothill Church is not about who's here and who's not here in terms of a staff member. Um, it's, uh, it, it is about a personality, and that personality is Jesus. And, and I'm so grateful that while I was gone, uh, people are getting saved, baptized, uh, home gro- growth groups are going great, and, uh, and the ministry just kept going. And that's because we have such an awesome staff here at Foothill Church and, uh, and great people that are helping us get all of these things done. And so I hope you'll, you'll take some time to thank them. And I, I want I want to especially thank um, uh, Stephen and uh, Ebenezer and Jeff Boyan and Ryan Hartwig for, for standing up here the last five weeks and, and just ministering the word to you. I listened to all of their sermons and I was so blessed to hear just the, the content and the weight of what they had to say and how they so rightly divided the word of truth as Paul says to, to Timothy and I'm grateful for them. And so uh, you are in good hands and I'm just glad I get to be back. I can't believe um, I get to do this for a living where I get to open up the word of God with you and, and talk to you about what it says. Okay, so why don't you do this and grab your Bibles and let's go to Song of Solomon chapter 6 and we're going to start in verse 11 and go all the way to chapter 7 verse 10. And while you're turning there, let me just sort of give you a roadmap of where things are headed in the next few weeks. We're going to finish out this series um, in, in uh, a few weeks and then uh, I'm going to uh, sort of press the pause button and we're going to take one week and I want to talk to you about this issue that's just permeating our culture right now and everybody where, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the sky is falling and, and terrible things are happening. It's the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And, and I just want to come and, and talk to you. And this is not where I'm going to come in guns blazing and blasting people. I, I, I simply, listen, we are a church that has said very distinctively and have said as part of our, our, our statement of faith is that uh, the Bible is everything to us. We don't worship it. We believe this is God's word to us. And so everything, our faith, our practice, everything emerges out of the Bible. I believe, I'll say this as clear as I can, I believe every word in the Bible is true. I believe everything that Jesus says we should do, we should do. Everything he says we shouldn't do, we should do. I believe everything he believed we should believe. I believe Jesus is the son of God. And that means that if I believe he is who he says he is, I must obey everything he tells me to obey. That's really the fundamental question. But I want to take some time to just talk about that issue and, and, and help us, you know, because I, I fear we're, we're, we're dividing into camps. I, I fear, you know, there's this, you know, everybody wants to sort of be waving the rainbow flag or not or hating it or, or calling names or whatever. And I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to come in here and say, what does the Bible say? And this is where we, 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 we as a church are going to put our allegiance, okay? And so we'll take time to talk about that in a, in a couple weeks here. And then as sort of a, a, a final um, part to this Song of Solomon series, we're going to take the final week um, after that, uh, that, that, that message on homosexuality, we're going to do a Q&A. And, and we've done this on several times. These are always some of the most fun services because every single service of the weekend is different. We never know what questions we're going to be asked in any given service. And so uh, we'll answer any questions you have. And it's not, this isn't just about 
homosexuality, but it's about your marriage. It's about relationships, dating, sex, you know, Jesus, romance, all that stuff. And, uh, and we'll come in here and it'll be me and Michelle and a, and a couple of the guys from the preaching team and their wives. And uh, we'll just try to come in here and we would just want to serve you. It's not to show how smart we are. I really don't think we're all that smart. It's just that if we can help uh, your marriages, if we can help you uh, bring to bear some, some biblical understanding of what's happening, then that's, that's what we want to do. Okay, and you'll be able to text it. You don't have to stand up and say, here's my question, embarrass yourself. You can text it in and then we'll throw it up on the screen uh, with your name. No, I'm just kidding. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then we'll be able to do it that way, okay? So I'm excited. it'll be a lot of fun and, and I hope you'll plan on, uh, on being here, okay? All right, we're in, we're in chapter six, verse uh, 11 uh, today. And um, so what we've seen is we've watched this couple. Isn't this, an am- this is an absolutely amazing book to me. Every time I return to it, uh, something new. But you watch this, this couple and they have met each other. They were attracted to each other. They started dating. They went through courtship. And I've, I've actually defined those about five weeks ago, what I mean by that. And then, and then they got engaged. And there was the, sort of the night before the wedding. And then there was the wedding day and the honeymoon. And so we've watched them go through this. In the last couple of weeks, um, Stephen and Ryan talked to you about how now they've sort of, they're having to manage their way through conflict, right? And isn't this real life, right? You get married. You, you think, I found my soulmate. Everything's going to be great. We'll never fight. No, no, then, and, then, and then day two happens, right? And you're, okay, we're, we're at it. And, and, and there's conflict. There's things that are going on in marriage. And so this is reality. And listen, some of the greatest couples I know, the couples that Michelle and I would look at and say, I want to learn to have a marriage like them are couples that have learned how to handle conflict. They've learned how to, to, to sort of, you know, wind their way through difficult periods, I remember when Michelle and I, we'd been married, I don't know, maybe about nine years, eight years or so, and, um, and we, we met this couple at our church who claimed, the church we were going to at the time, that, that, that claimed they had never had, they'd married, married 25 years, I think they said, they, they, they'd never had an argument, never had any conflict. And I remember just being like, What? How's that possible, right? And, and, and it went from incredulity to like, what a bummer. What a bummer for them because, because think about this. I'm not saying, hey, go home and fight with your spouse. It's a great thing. I'm saying, think about if you are, a, if, if this is a Christian marriage, one of the most tangible ways we know that the gospel is true, that we bring the gospel to bear in our home is when there is conflict and I seek forgiveness and I am actually forgiven. And the person forgives me. I mean, listen, one of the husbands and wives, moms and dads, one of the greatest things you can do to release the gospel in your home is when, not if conflict arises, when conflict arises, you bring the gospel to bear. And one of the greatest things we can do is forgive, be forgiven, and reconcile, right? But here's what I know. Um, Forgiveness and reconciliation are not merely words we offer to each other. I'm sorry, me too. Right? It's not that. that okay, that may be a start. And now we're going to go to our rooms and sulk. No, forgiveness ultimately has to be backed up by action. That's what God did for us. God says, I'm, 
I'm going to forgive you, but I'm not just going to sort of speak words of forgiveness over planet earth and just go, sin doesn't matter, whatever. I'll just look the other way. God has not done that to one sin in the universe. You understand this? Forgiveness is very, very costly. It's always costly. It costs Jesus, God, his own son to forgive you. In a marriage, it will cost you that sort of devious, I want to hold this sin over your head, but I won't. You know what I'm talking about? I, I, I want to I make this, this is going to be a, a point of manipulation. I'm going to be able to bring this up later on. I'm not going to really forgive. I'll say I forgive you. No, it's got to be backed up by my action that I really genuinely forgive you. And now let me suggest this, that in a marriage, one of the most tangible ways we can demonstrate that forgiveness has really happened, it's not just words, is through physical intimacy. That this is where you know a husband and a wife are truly, fully reconciled. Now listen to me. This is why we say over and over that sex is never just sex. When the culture wants you to believe, when maybe even some other Christians you've talked to want you to believe that all it is is two bodies rubbing together to find some sort of ecstatic pleasure. Yep, that's true. But that is the most shallow understanding of sex that you can come up with. It is this, what the Bible, the Bible elevates sex. The Bible tells you it is this multi-layered, multifaceted thing that God, gift that God has given us and it is so profound and so deep what is happening in this act of physical intimacy, so much so that Paul will say, and, and just simply echoing what the Bible has already said a number of times, that when a, 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 a man and a woman come together, the two become one flesh and it doesn't matter Paul says he says if a man unites himself to a prostitute in physical intimacy he says don't you know in first Corinthians the two become one flesh there's something very profound very spiritual happening here see, see this is so important which is why which is why things um if you let's say it this way if you're having sex with somebody who is not your husband, somebody who is not your wife, uh, you have a very complicated relationship. You cannot have an ordinary breakup. Right? Because now uh, we're physically involved. Probably you will stay with them longer than you should. You won't really be thinking rationally. Because it's, see, see here, here's what God designed. You understand, we've said it all along. The Bible tells us over and over, God invented sex. The culture didn't. He invented sex. He knows how it works. He knows where it goes out of bounds. He knows where it will cause pain and agony. All that. He invented it. And you know he invented it to say? Sex is this proclamation of a husband to a wife, a wife to a husband that says, I give myself Utterly, completely, exclusively to you. Over and over and over again. So Tim Keller will say in this way, sex, I love this, is to a marriage what the Lord's Supper is to a church. Now why does he say that? 
What's the Lord's Supper? We do it every week at, at Foothill Church. We, we take the Lord's Supper over and over. The Lord's Supper doesn't save anyone. Right? You don't take the Lord's Supper and because I took it, I'm saved again today or I, I got saved for the whatever. That doesn't save anyone. You know what it does? It simply commemorates. It simply remembers. It simply renews the covenant that we have with God. It's this reminder over and over again, this is what God has done for me in Christ. This is who I am in Christ. This is the relationship we have. We have this covenant commitment and I come in and I partake of the Lord's Supper every week to remind myself of that covenant, to remind myself what God has done for me in Christ. And so it is in marriage that a husband and wife come together and what are they doing? They're renewing their covenant I give myself again, exclusively, completely to you, no one else. I'm yours. I'm renewing, if you will, my vows to you. Okay, now what does this have to do with Song of Solomon? Everything. Because I'm telling you, I don't think you can understand a biblical view of sex. I don't think you can understand the Song of Solomon until you understand this This. Sex has a higher purpose than just two bodies bumping together. And this couple understands that. Did God create it for pleasure? Absolutely. Did God create it for far more? Did he, did he, did he intend it to be this glue that binds you together? Yes. Did he intend it to be this tangible demonstration of reconciliation and forgiveness that will ultimately have to come into a marriage? Yes. All those things are true. It is so deep, so profound. And this couple gets it. And so I want you to watch today because they're, they're going to come together again. They've had, we've, we've watched this argument the last couple of weeks, right? Stephen started it. The honeymoon is over. Ryan continued it. The man basically came and said to the woman, I still desire you even after all that. And now it's going to be her turn. And so basically this last couple of weeks is sort of kissing and making up, except it's in the opposite order. They're going to make up. And as you'll see, they're they're going to kiss and more than that. So let's get going. Okay, so chapter 6, verse 11. The first thing I want you to see is they, they truly, they really reconciled with each other. Okay, not, not just words. They started to back it up with their action. Now watch how this happens. Okay, it's her turn. Verse 11, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossom of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Now, what's she doing? We've already said over and over, their bodies are like vineyards. They're, they're like orchards, if you will. And so she goes down. What's she doing? What's she saying poetically? I basically went to my husband and said, are we okay? Is everything okay? But more than that, you understand, she's not just walking into his room and he's sulking in his study or he's doing whatever. He's playing a video game. He's watching TV. Baby, are we okay? Yeah, honey, whatever. What? No, no. This is, she walks and says, I want to know we're really okay. And the way I want to know we're okay is, will you make love to me? Can we be fully reconciled? Can we, can we renew the covenant again? I love that. I love that they want to have that kind of reconciliation. He doesn't rebuff her. He doesn't push her away and say, you know what, fine, just give me some space. 
Look, look what he says in verse, what she says in verse 12. Before I was aware, I mean, boom, there was just this, this forgiveness. My desire, I wanted to be with him and my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. That's a very difficult uh, phrase in the Hebrew. And so scholars sort of wonder what's going on there and, and debate what the language actually means. But, but here she comes and she says, I want to know if we're okay. And he, he, boom, before she can even sort of respond, he brings her into the chariot. I'm the king, you're the queen, we're back together again. Everything's going to be okay, sweetie. We're fine. And yes, I want to be with you. There's this total reconciliation. They have sinned against each other. And yet there's been this conflict. There's been this pain. There's been these things that have happened in their marriage. And yet they're willing to forgive and be forgiven. They're willing to reconcile and be reconciled. See, what I, what I want you to hear is sort of this gospel melody running through all of this. We come to Jesus. We come to God. We've sinned. We've blown it. We come to him and say, are, are we okay? Isn't this how some of us, like this is, this is church for some of us. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm trembling. I've blown it this week. Are we okay? I'm I'm genuinely repentant. I'm not smoothing over and acting like my sin is no big deal and whatever, God just has to accept me. That, uh, no Christian will talk like that. There will be genuine repentance, but you'll come to him and say, are we okay? And he'll say, come on, right? Into the chariot with me. We're, we're back together. I love you. Do you know Jesus like this? Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus that, that because, because you understand he has paid the price for you, he has paid for all your sins, he, you have found shelter in him, you have placed your faith in him, that he's not sitting there looking for all the terrible things you've done. He's saying, I forgive you. I forgive you. And we can be reconciled and we can renew the covenant again today. This is so great. What good news. So they really reconciled. But the second thing I want you to see is they began to enjoy their intimacy again. So look at verse 13. Now this again, very, very strange in the Hebrew, but, but listen how it reads in your Bible. Return, return, O Shulamite. That's her. Return, return, so that we may look upon you. So here's these outsiders going, we want to look at you, want to see you. What, what do they want to see? Well, the man kind of interrupts them and says, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Okay, here's what's happening. They're, they're if you will, um, how do I say this? They're the friends that maybe some of you go to and tell them about, you know, what your guy is like, what your girl is like, and how they either satisfy you or don't satisfy you. And I wish he wouldn't do that, and I wish you wouldn't. And she, they're saying, tell us, come on, let us into your bedroom, if you will. Not, not literally, you understand? I, I, want, I want to know what goes on there. And the man goes, no. Right, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's not for your ears, it's not for your eyes. I'm not telling you this is private. Now, now listen, married couples, no one, no one should ever be told what goes on in your bedroom. Ladies and men, you should never go talk to somebody about your disappointments. About why he, you know, I wish he did this or I wish he, why, why does he act this way or that way? 
He's saying, man, I, this, 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 what's happening right now in my bedroom is for my eyes only, and it's not for you. Well, what is happening in the bedroom? Well, look at verse 13. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Now, I don't think it's a stretch to think she's, she's dancing before him. She's, there's this sort of erotic thing happening, some sensuous dance, and, and he, he describes it very interestingly as a dance before two armies. That's, that is... Um, the word machaneum literally means uh, two camps. And what would happen is armies would come together in battle array. And this is not like modern warfare. This is, this is you know, sort of old-fashioned warfare where they'd line up together. There'd be, you know, standards and banners and all these things. And archers go here and here and, you know, all these kind of things. And there'd be sort of this choreography, this kind of dance that would go on between these two armies. And people would actually come out and watch armies engage in this and he says I don't want you watching this but I'm watching this and it is mesmerizing I'm watching all the parts and how they fit together in this choreography and I'm I'm utterly mesmerized listen we've said this and the Bible's going to teach us over and over ladies the Bible knows nothing of female passivity in sex it knows nothing of saying that you know your job is just sort of sit there and be a passive recipient or whatever and just please him no she, she takes initiative she's done it since the opening verses and here she is again she's dancing before her husband now what I want you to see next is that, they're, 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 this mature couple, their mature intimacy has not become a stale intimacy, right? So here, here's what I mean by that. Um, so, so you're supposed to understand as this poetry unfolds that this, this couple has gone through seasons. So where we are in their life is not two 22-year-olds, 25-year-olds who just got married, this is now a couple who has maybe a dozen years or so under their belt. This is a couple who has gone through seasons of, you know, the, the, the dating, attraction, all those kind of things that have come. And now they've gone through seasons of conflict. Now they're much more mature. And yet, what you're going to see, what I'm about to show you, is that they are, they genuinely still enjoy, have found fresh, exciting ways, new ways of, of being together physically. They haven't they haven't fallen into some sort of rut as the culture tells you, as, as people even told you. Maybe, you. maybe you even heard this in the church. Maybe you've heard friends of yours talking about how, you know what, after a certain time, it just becomes kind of like whatever. We just sort of get together. It's five minutes. We're done. Well, they didn't get that memo, as you're going to see. And they still think there's ways to find wonder and beauty and enjoyment and freshness and all of that in this physical intimacy between the two of them. See, there's this myth that says the way you sort of keep passion alive, the way that you don't get bored with sex is that you need to have multiple partners. And it is a myth. Because not, not just because the Bible would say you shouldn't do that, the research would say exactly the opposite is true. The most sexually satisfied people in the world, according to research, are married couples, especially married couples who understand the power the beauty, what sex can do in gluing couples together. See, they're, they're not going to allow this to get stale. So now, watch this. He, after all these years, still loves her body. So here we go, chapter 7, verse 1, and let's start reading. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. 
He looks at her. And now, now I want you to notice something. He starts at her feet and is going to begin working upward. In chapter 4, Ebenezer uh, talked to you about a few weeks ago. He started her head and he worked down. It's interesting, after so many years, he's finding new ways to look at her. He's just gazing at her right now. He's just taking in this sort of, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sound crass or anything, this eye candy. He's finding new ways. He looks at her and says, man, and he looks, he says, her feet are in sandals, which is probably the only clothing she's wearing at the moment. She's dancing. It makes sense. If she's dancing, she's, he's looking at her feet, and he notices that, and he, he says, look, look at, she, she's like a treasure chest. She's like this orchard, this vineyard, and it is, it is something that I find delight in every part of her, even her feet, right? And I... Feet would have been nasty things in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Right? I mean, most, most people, just so you know, didn't, didn't even have sandals. So hers were probably cleaner, more beautiful. I mean, it's how he's seeing her. And I look at your feet, and, and I, I, am, I, I enjoy them. But now we, we keep going, and it gets intense, more intense and more sensual. He says, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. So he's moving his way up her body. And when, when in the ancient Near Eastern culture, the thighs were just understood. I mean, we think of thighs like right here. The thighs were understood to be sort of the upper part of the leg. It would have included the hips, the buttocks. That would have been. So, so now we can think when he gets to curves and rounded parts, he's... Checking her out and going, I like that. <laughs> right? I like that about you. You know, I don't know if this, I like big butts and I cannot like, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. He just looks at her and goes, I, I like what I, and you know what? You know, he does. Notice he's not crass. He's not crude. He just looks at her and, 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 and you know, we don't know about this woman. We don't know whether she's skinny or robust. You don't. But what you do know is that the standard of beauty for this man, guys, is her, not the culture, not a swimsuit magazine, not a Victoria's Secret catalog. It's her. I like your body, and when I look at your body, I see, isn't this great? I see the work of a master hand. I just love how God created you. What a way to set your wife at ease. As she gets older, and she watches her body and she can't keep her body in the shape she used to be. And instead of saying, you know, yeah, I see age is really worn on you, sweetie. <laughs> he looks at her and goes, no, you know what I see? I see the work of a master hand. I see God shaping you and I love it. Wow. He, he's, he's Yoda, right? I mean, he's, he's, he is a Jedi master. So let's, let's keep going. Now, he looks at her and he says, your navel, now watch this, think, think as he moves up, Notice, just think this with me, your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine, your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Okay, I don't want to get crass, I want to just, let's think anatomically. So he's moving up and he talks about her navel and then her belly, well, I look at my body and my navel is above my belly. Seems he should go belly than navel, right? What is, does he not know? No, I think her navel isn't her navel. Can I just say it that way? And I think he's using this 
as a picture in order to not be crude. But notice he says your, your navel is a rounded bowl filled with mixed wine. In other words, this part of your body is, there's, it's mixed. There's variety. There's all kinds of things that we can enjoy. And it's wine. It's a source of intoxicating pleasure for me. Man, he, he just knows how to speak in ways that don't make her feel like he's being dirty or, or crass or crude. He just talks to her and says, I, I find you beautiful. I find every part of you beautiful. Now, now he goes on and says, but your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Now, guys, let me give you some advice. Probably don't use heap and belly in the same description with your wife, right? That's probably not smart. But what's he doing? This is very interesting to me, okay? I told you this is a, a maturing couple, now, maybe what's happening is that the standard of beauty in the ancient Near Eastern culture, sort of what everybody recognized as a beautiful figure, would not be the washboard abs, crossfit body that we tend to like today. Maybe, maybe over the years, she's developed a little belly. Right? Maybe she's gotten a pooch, whatever you want to say, Right? And he looks at her and goes, I don't, I don't look, he doesn't look at her and go, man, I wish you would work that thing off. Come on, baby, you've let yourself go. He looks and says, I love that. It is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Like, it's beautiful to me. I remember uh, a few years ago, I was counseling with a couple and, um, and the, the, the guy was talking to me and he was, he was telling me how he really, really loved his wife and he really found her attractive and, and, um, and she had, um, had a couple of C-sections and so she had some, she had some um, uh, you know, sensitivity about her body, right? I've got a scar now on my stomach. And she, he, he, he said, I love this. He said, you know what? When I look at that scar... I don't think it's ugly. You know, I look at, I look at it like the, the scar of a battle and I'm so proud of her. It's like, you're awesome. That's a fantastic thing to say. See, he's looking at her and saying, I, I love this. I, I, I love that you're aging with me. I love that we're, we're getting older together. I, I love the heap of wheat that is your belly. Now he goes up and keeps going and he says, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Now, he said this before in chapter 4. But now, now, now think, think, these are, why fawns? I mean, he's, is he, he's not describing shape, right? But he, he's talking about um, graceful, um, I, don't, I don't know that we're talking about size here, but, but think about what a, what a fawn is, right? So this is a, this is a little animal. Well, baby, <laughs> let me say it this way. Um, if he wants to play with the fawns, not happy days, uh, <laughs> they, they, they are like twins of a gazelle. If he wants to play with the fawns, he doesn't jump out of the bush and go, hey, fawns, right, or just grab them. He approaches softly, 
right? Gracefully, slowly. And guys, I'll let your wives talk to you about that one, but uh, uh, enough there, okay? Now, Look at, look at how he ends this section. Look at verses 4 and 5. Your neck is like an ivory towel. Your, your, your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like a jewel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. Now, boy, we could unpack all that imagery. I just want you to, look, you understand he's now describing her from here up. See, if this were pornography, he'd have stopped. If this were, I just like your body, I just objectify you as you are an object of sexual fulfillment to me, he would have stopped. But he doesn't. He goes, I like you, right? I look in your eyes. I see your hair. I see your face, your neck, everything. And I love you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. I love every part of you, sweetie. And I think when he gets to her head, he's saying to her this, I, I, I hope you don't misunderstand. When I describe your body and everything I love about your body, I, I hope you don't ever walk away and think all he loves is my body. I want to make sure she understands I love her. I love you. I love everything you are for me. I remember when I was in high school, I, as high school guys do I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was he was relating a conversation of a um, uh, of of with some other guys that he was standing around with, and they were talking about their sort of sexual exploits, and and they were talking about how they loved having sex with girls with really hot bodies. And somebody said, "Well, what if they have a really hot body and they're ugly?" And one of the guys responded, "I just put a bag over their head." I understand that's, that's what happens when sex gets twisted. And it becomes this objectifying, all this is is two bodies bumping together. And when it's not, no, man, the Bible looks and says it's, it's everything. The top of their head to the bottom of their to- to- toes. And he, he looks and says, you know what? There's something royal, there's something regal, there's something really, really wonderful about you. I, I love you. I love all of you. But now I'll keep going. And he says he, he still enjoys, maybe we should say they still enjoy sexual intimacy. So look at, look at verse, the next part of verse 6. Um, How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. All your delights, every part of you, top of your head, bottom of your feet, I, 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 you are totally pleasant to me. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters. A palm tree in those days, this is not, we're not talking about coconuts now. This is a date palm. It has a syrupy, sweet nectar. And he looks at her and says, this is what your, 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 your breasts are like. It's clusters. I, I will say, I, I, will, I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Now, I don't think you need me to draw you a picture here. I think you know exactly what he's talking about. But, but what I want you to see now is now he's going, I've just been gazing at you. I've just been looking at you and I'm so blown away by what I see and now I want to bridge the gap between you and me and I want to stop gazing and I want to start engaging. I want to start engaging all of my senses, the touch, taste, smell, feel everything. 
And so they begin to enjoy this physical act of intimacy. They're together. And, um, and so then, then keep going. Verse, verse, uh, next part of verse 9, she starts talking. says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. They engage in this, I guess you will, long, sweet kiss together. Here is a mature couple. Here's a couple that's been together for years now. And look at them. This isn't something where they went, man, oh, to be 22 again. Oh, to be 25 again. You know, truthfully, in a, in a growing Christian marriage where you understand that sex is this wonderful gift that God has given you, you will look back on your 25s, on your, on your early 30s, and you'll be like, that's the worst sex of my life. God has something so much greater in store for us, and he does. See, if there's anything I can tell you is the gospel of Jesus Christ brings hope. I mean, this is what God does. He, he can utterly transform lives. He can utterly transform marriages, and he cares about every part of your life. And if you'll let him control, and if he can come into the middle of your home, this can be something that is is utterly renovated by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now, now look at verse 10. This is the last verse. She says, I am my beloved's. I, I, right? What did I, what I tell you? What is sex? Sex is I belong totally, completely, exclusively to you and you to me. And then she says, she keeps going and says, and his desire is for me. Now, now that word desire, you've seen in English the word desire before in the Song of Solomon, but you've never seen this word. Because this is a completely different word in the Hebrew than any other desire in the Song of Solomon. It's a very interesting word because it's only used two other times in Scripture, both times in the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis, it has very negative connotations. In fact, it's used the first time in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, Adam and Eve listen to the serpent, decide God's a liar. God doesn't know what's best for us. We can do what we want. We can sin. We don't have to take God at his word. We can decide our own path. We don't have to listen to what he says. They do their own thing. What is called the fall happens. That is, God comes into the garden and says, now everything's wrecked. You're going to be ejected from the garden. Death now sets in. The universe is fractured and he pronounces curses on the serpent, on the man, and on the woman. And when he gets to the woman, he says to her, Eve, you shall have pain in childbirth. That's part one. And part two is your desire will be for your husband. Isn't that weird? That's a curse. Now hear me. Hear me. No, 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 because it's not what you think, right? Because if it's sexual desire, every guy in here is like, curse my wife, right? That's, that's not what's happening here. This is the battle of the sexes because that word means you will want to overthrow his leadership. You, you will want to overthrow his headship illegitimately. You get to chapter 4, Remember, Cain and Abel both offer sacrifices. 
Cain, uh, Abel's was more acceptable to God. God comes and talks to Cain and he says to him, Cain, you're like, I know what's going on in your heart. This is my paraphrase. I know what's happening there. There's something percolating and, and this is not going to end well. And he says it this way, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. This is not a good desire until you get to the Song of Solomon. Or because of the ferocious love of this man for his wife and this wife for her husband, he says, if you will, the effects of the fall are overturned. They give themselves completely to one another. I am his. And he has this ferocious desire for me not to hurt me, not to harm me. And she loves it, ladies. She loves that. She doesn't withhold from him. She doesn't use her body. She doesn't use physical intimacy as a reward. Like, oh, you've been a good boy today. I'll have sex with you. Or as a punishment. Never do that. See, she, she gives herself to it and she loves the fact that he has this kind of ferocious desire. Ladies, I want you to understand something about your husbands, right? I've heard some women say things like this. I wish he could just hold me. I wish my husband would hug me more. I wish my husband would tell me I'm beautiful. Now, guys, I'm not, I'm not excusing you for not doing those things. But ladies, let me suggest that isn't it amazing how God wired us? That your husband has a desire for physical intimacy with you and the greatest way that he can hold you, the greatest way that he can tell you I love you and find you utterly desirable is through physical intimacy. And you can be held and you can be hugged and you can be told, man, I find you desirable. But if you withhold and you use your body as a weapon and you use sex as a weapon in your marriage and say no, no, no and keep pushing him off, right? If he tries to climb the palm tree and gets beaten down with coconuts every time, then, then, then let me tell you what your husband's gonna do. See, see let, let, me, let me let you in on a little secret. Guys, we, you know how depre depression most often comes out in guys is through anger. And guys have this very, hard external shell with a sappy middle. And what I mean by that is, is you can crush them. And you can crush them from the inside out. You just keep rejecting and rejecting them. Now let me tell you what your husband will do if you do that. You reject him over and over and over. He is going to try and figure out ways not to find you desirable because he doesn't want to be rejected again and again and again and again. He's literally trying to put you out of his mind. You don't want that. She looks and says, I'm his. He's got this ferocious love for me, and I love that about him. See, see 
See, I love this because all through it, you're seeing this picture of Jesus. You're seeing this ferocious love that God has for us through Christ. You're, you're seeing Jesus Christ. He looks at you. And you know what happens when you're in Christ, when you are forgiven, when you have placed your faith in Christ, then he's paid for all your sin. All your ugliness is wiped out. And now God looks at you. And like the man looks at the woman and finds every part of her beautiful, God looks and says, I see you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. And I find you utterly beautiful. I'm not looking for all the flaws. I'm not looking for all the terrible things in your life I love you and I love you so much that like this is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says don't you understand that a marriage is this mystery and it's mystery that shows us this picture of God it's this it's it's Jesus and his church and the way a man loves the, the, the his wife and a wife submits and loves her to her husband this is a picture of Christ and his church and 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 it's this he, he does he wash her does he cleanse her does he yes he does all these things he, he's not angry at her He does all these things patiently, lovingly. God is slowly sanctifying you. He's slowly helping you become all that he has designed you to become, not by beating you over the head, not by telling you how ugly you are, not by making fun of you, not by pointing out all of your flaws, but just slowly, slowly through his kindness and his mercy and his grace, sanding away the rough edges of your life. And he looks and he says, I see a master hand at work and it's my master hand. This is what a relationship with Jesus Christ is. He transforms you. And this is the hope that he can offer to a marriage. When the gospel enters into a marriage, I tell every married couple I've ever married, if you can let loose the gospel in your home, if you can figure out how to unpack the gospel in your marriage, you will have a great marriage. And here's a couple that's doing just that and enjoying all the fruits that come with it. Do you know Jesus like this? Do you know a God who, who, who if you'll come to him, he will not cast you away? See, some of you, all you know is religion. All you know is I've got to do better. All I've, I've got to perform. God wants me to be the best version of myself before I even approach his throne. No, he doesn't. He's okay with a heap of wheat. He's okay with the flaws that you think you have. He says, you come to me and I'll go to work and you know what? I'm gonna make you into something beautiful. You're beautiful because you're my bride. You're beautiful because you belong to me. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, he has, he will, if you'll put your faith in him, take away all your sin. He'll remove it from you. And we can have this covenant together and you can come to church and you can know even if you've blown it, I'm here. And we can renew the covenant again. And I'll bring you to myself and totally reconcile you. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I love you. And I thank you. I thank you for your word and I thank you for the ways that it it reveals to us in all kinds of different ways who Jesus is and what he is for us. And I thank you for the gospel, Lord, and I thank you for Jesus' death, and I thank you that, that your desire for us is not harm. Your desire 
is that we would be conformed to the image of your son. Lord, I know there's so much misunderstanding out there about what it means to be a Christian. And some people have this idea that they've got to clean up their act before they come to Jesus. They've got to, they've got to perform their way into heaven. And Lord, I pray that what would come through loud and clear is that that is not how the ultimate groom looks at his bride. He looks at us with all of our earthly faults, with all of our besetting sins, with all the ways we've blown it, and he finds us delightful. That's unbelievable to me, God. And it's that kind of kindness that leads me to repentance. Say, oh God, shape me, mold me into what you want me to be for you because you love me, you love us so much we can hardly fathom. So I pray, God, open eyes, unstop ears, and let people believe today in the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. And let the rest of us, God, who are saved, let us believe it again, renew it again, set it free again in our homes and our lives so that we can be the people you've called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name.